Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. Sunday. We're just so glad. And if you're newer here, if you've been here for a while, you know this, but if you're newer here, you know that we love Holy Week. We, we love Holy Week. We love to enter into the narrative of uh, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And we want to live our week in connection to the events of that week, which is why we do Thursday night we take communion and we wash feet. And on Friday night, um, we enter into the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. We don't avoid Good Friday and just skip to Easter. We enter into the reality of what happened on that night and what it would have felt like. We embrace the silence of Saturday, right? Jesus spent the Saturday in the grave, and you imagine what it would be like to be there on that Saturday, and then we celebrate Easter. If you've been here on Easter, we have confetti cannons, and we have cake, and we worship the risen Lord, and we celebrate Him as we practice for the wedding feast. So someday we're going to have a wedding feast, and there's going to be this reception for the bride and the groom, and so we practice that Easter. So I'd invite you to join us on that journey this year as we just encounter Jesus freshly every year. Um, So, This morning, we're in Luke 19, if you've got your Bible. Luke 19, starting in verse 40, the triumphal entry. I'm going to read through this. And uh, I have no slides this week, so those of you who love slides, I'm sorry. Um, We had two basketball games Thursday, two basketball games, uh, two football games Friday, two basketball games Saturday, two soccer games Saturday, a wedding shower, and then a church event. Um, So... I'm wearing the slides in my heart this morning, so just look closely. We had one of those weeks. Anybody else? Any amens from the parents of children in here? Amen. And the church said amen. So, verse 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. This is where Jesus taught the Jedi mind trick to his disciples. It's pretty awesome. You should try it. Um, So they went ahead and found it just as he had told them as they were untying the colt. Its owners asked them, why are you untying this colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Luke 19.40. Got it? Luke 19.40. Yep. Is that right? 28. Sorry. 28 through 40. Sorry. Sorry. You're like, you're going backwards. Sorry. 28 through 40. As I said, it's been a long week. So um, the Lord needs it. 
They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of, uh, down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they have seen. If you've been to Israel, you know that um, as you picture the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives, there's not that great of distance between these two. So as Jesus coming down this road, they could see the temple. You mean, it's like they're in the city, you're, you're like seeing him right in and you're seeing the city, like this cityscape and you're seeing the temple and there's just people everywhere. It's just got to be this amazing experience. And then the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And they shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And there's always some Debbie Downers around, right? So the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples, right? Rebuke your disciples. They're calling you a king, right? And, and they, they would say, the Jews would say, there's no king but God. There's one king and it's God in heaven. It's definitely not this man, even though he might be a good teacher and a prophet and he might be doing miracles. He's not God, and I love the response of Jesus. Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. <laughs> the stones will cry out, as you hear the children cry. That was awesome. <laughs> totally planned that. Amazing timing. The stones will cry out. So Jesus enters Jerusalem like a triumphant king. In, in Roman culture, this is what would happen. You'd win a great battle, and they would have this processional, and you'd ride into the shouts and praise of people, and they would shout things like, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. There's none like Caesar. He is Lord. And Jesus enters to this praise of God with loud voices and shouts. They wave palm branches. They throw their cloaks on the ground because Jesus is a king. He's royalty, and he's a conquering king. And it's really interesting because Jesus enters as a conquering king before he's actually done his conquering. Isn't that interesting? He, he like enters in this pre-victory. He knows the outcome of what's going to happen and people treat him like that. And so today, I, I, what I want to do is, is do something a little bit different maybe than a usual Palm Sunday. I want to focus on... Um, What's happening in this triumphal entry, people's response to Jesus, his response to them. And then there's two really interesting passages that come right after that that are actually connected that we rarely connect um, together. So in Luke 19.40, what happens when the people see Jesus? They worship. Isn't that amazing that they see him and they praise God with loud voices and shouts? And then you see the response of the religious leaders, right? They want them to be quiet. <laughs> They're like, would you guys, you guys be quiet? Stop that. They try to keep them quiet and Judah, uh, uh, Jesus rebukes them. And I love this because Jesus just sets this stage here that he says, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King, I'm the Son of God, and I will be worshiped. <laughs> whether it's you or someone else, whether it's the Jews or the Gentiles, whether it's human beings or creation, I will be worshiped. And here's the other thing, you will worship something or someone. You are wired in creation to worship. And you'll either worship the true God or you'll worship yourself or you'll worship your children or you'll worship money or you'll worship success or pleasure, anything like that. But you will worship and Jesus says, I deserve worship. All creation, he says, the stones will cry out. Chase said it. He was there in the beginning. He created the heavens and the earth, right? He, they spoke it into existence. And these things actually have memory of him. 
Isn't that amazing? They know who created them. Like the rocks, the trees, the mountains. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. If you can hear it, if you can tune in, you will hear the praise of creation about who God is. Paul says in Romans 1 that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. And this is why when you get into places of nature that are glorious and majestic, your heart longs to worship. It longs to praise, it longs to give thanks, it longs to direct the beauty of these things to someone. And you're just like, I just sat on that mountain and it just felt like God was so close to me, right? It's because you, you got into touch with what Paul's talking about in Romans 1. But I, I want us to see that Jesus as the king, not only of Israel, but of the world, of the universe, it says that he holds all all power and authority on the earth, over the earth, under the earth. There's, there's nowhere that Jesus isn't king, that our first response to him as king is to worship. It's to worship. It's to praise. It's to, to exalt. It's to magnify. It's to glorify. It's to lift up. And this is really important because every other response Jesus asks you to do in relation to him is supposed to come through this. It's actually supposed to come through worship. As you exalt him, as you praise him, as you glorify him, as you gaze at him, as you just wonder at him, all of the other stuff that he, he puts out there that this is what life looks like and the kingdom is meant to be lived through that. And, and the problem for us is if it's not lived through that, Christianity becomes a heavy burden, right? Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and yet many of us would say, man, I, I haven't really experienced that, and it's mostly because we haven't entered into obedience through worship, through seeing him, through glorifying him, through praising him, through looking at him, and so then what we end up doing as Christians is just trying really hard, <laughs> trying really hard, and then what we see is Christianity really works for certain types of personalities, right? Personalities who are like type A, they, they can get their life together, they're organized, you know, they, they're hard workers, they're disciplined. And then for some of the rest of us, we're like, what is, if that's it, I'm, I'm going to struggle the rest of my life with this Jesus guy, if he expects that. Uh, Annie and I um, met with a counselor one time, and we did this personality, like, temperament test. And it had all these things about whether you're objective or subjective, and, uh, and it rates you. Like, baselines here, you're either, uh, you're either subjective or objective, and one of them was disciplined or spontaneous. And uh, Annie was, like, nowhere on the chart, spontaneous. It was, like, he would have had to, like, lower, like, I think he said, like, that's the most spontaneous score I've ever seen. And then I was far, far on spontaneous. Like, we have no discipline. Like, it's just... It's our name. It's our name. It makes our life really fun and exciting and adventurous. But the counselor's like, "Whoa, you guys are gonna have to work on this, like being disciplined." Because I, I, but I'm just like, I'm not the guy who wakes up every morning and opens my Bible and does my quiet time. 
I, I hate to confess that. You might want to go to church somewhere else. You're like, you, you don't do that every morning? How can you be in ministry? It's, it's not my thing. I just have never been able to sustain that disciplined thing. I encounter God like this throughout my day and all over the place. And, and really, where we've created the space for me now is in our prayer room. Our staff prays and worships together for about an hour to two hours every single day. Because my heart just connects to corporate worship. That's like kind of like, I just love being around people. And I love like, so even I'm weird in that like, I, would, I loved when we worked downtown. I love to study for my sermons at Coffee Slingers. It's weird that the noise of this place focused me to concentrate. Todd, on the other hand, sits in his office with, <laughs> he closes his door and puts on noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> you know, so we're like, where's Todd? He's in there somewhere, you know, with his heater on. You know, it's like, he's just like, it's in the middle of summer. Um, and so it's fascinating, like, like, how we can think that God expects something of us that he, he doesn't actually. So worship is this fascination with Jesus. And if you can get fascinated with Jesus, you can be his disciple. That's it. And you can be his disciple in the way that he's made you to be a disciple, not in the way that somebody else is. And so the church is this radical acceptance of every single person in here, how they connect to God, who they are, how God's created them. It's not, here's a mold of a righteous person, and if you don't fit it, good luck with the rest of your life. That's not the way it is, right? So worship is this first and primary response. It's why we've organized our church to be a worshiping community. Because we just believe if we get that thing right, everything else will take care of itself. Like if we'll just worship Jesus consistently, passionately together, we'll have Bible studies, we'll have all the stuff that you would need in a church, you'll have all that stuff. And we do because it's just overflow of the heart. So if you move to the next passage, right, verse 41, this is interesting. Um, it says, as he approached Jerusalem, right? So they have this triumphal entry. He has this confrontation with the leaders. And then he approaches Jerusalem. He sees the city and he weeps over it. And he said this, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So Jesus looks at them and, and, and he, he weeps because, because he knows that they're not actually seeing him the way they should see him. Right? They're seeing something that they either want to see or they're just missing it completely, right? So the people who are worshiping at that time, they're throwing down palm branches. Why are they throwing down palm branches? Some people say, oh, it's the, the festival of Sukkot, which is the festival of the tabernacles, and they'd build these kind of structures, and they'd put palm leaves on top. But most people really think that they're doing that because that's what they did when Judah Maccabees defeated, uh, I think it was the Syrians, right? And then you had the miracle of Hanukkah, and they had this great time before the Romans where they actually ruled their own nation, so it's interesting that they used the same response to Jesus as they did for the Maccabees. They thought he was going to be like them. They thought, here's our king who's going to come and defeat the Romans in combat, and we'll get our temple back, and we'll get a king back, and we'll get our land back. And, and so they were worshiping him, but at an angle that wasn't actually about who he truly was. They were worshiping who they wanted him to be. Or who they expected him to be, not who, who, who he actually was. So in their praise, they actually didn't get revelation of who Jesus is. And that's what true worship, worship from the heart that looks at him, that uses scripture as a guide that just kind of gets together. What you get is revelation of who Jesus is. 
And that's the key because there's no wisdom, right, apart from revelation. And Jesus looks at them, he goes, if you only knew what would make for your peace, you're living unwisely. Guess what? The Romans are going to destroy you. He's talking about AD 70. If you read the, the, the history of that, it's an awful, awful war. And he's like, this is coming because of your lack of wisdom. Because you're missing it. You think this is about land and buildings and all those things. That's not. It's about your heart. And if you could receive me into your heart, you could avoid all of this pain. And yet, they would not. But worship is the action that leads to revelation, and there's no true wisdom, right, that isn't revealed by God. So 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 18, if you've got your Bible, I think that's the right passage. You know, look around if it's not. Um, Paul says this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So Paul says this, listen, the wisdom of God can't be received by people who don't no God, right? Like, it's, it just seems foolishness that you would die on a cross to defeat an empire. <laughs> You're like, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, really, right? How can death win war? For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Isn't it interesting? It was the teachers who rebuked people. It was the people who were supposedly wise who were the least likely to receive Jesus as he truly is. <laughs> it was like their knowledge and their education and their practices actually obstructed their vision. For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know, God, know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He's like, we don't clean it up. We don't make it sound better. We don't tell you all the ways that this is actually cool and awesome. And, and No, it's like, <laughs> this man was crucified. We just tell it in the simplest form. But this crucifixion is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So when you worship and you get into contact with the very presence of God, you learn that your wisdom isn't very wise and your strength isn't very strong. And you realize how much of your life is spent trying to be wise and strong in ways that God never asked of you. And he's saying, if you just surrender your strength and your wisdom to me, I can use my strength and my wisdom that can do more than you can imagine. And that's the gospel. The gospel is about surrender. The gospel is not about living a good life and pleasing God with your actions. The life it's about surrendering to who God is. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Or as my little nephew who grew up in um, western Kentucky with his grandpa who was a, a preacher and just an amazing guy, he trained my nephew to preach this sermon. It was about 12 minutes long and he would take him to hospitals where he would visit sick people and he would set my nephew up and let him preach. And in the middle of this sermon with his little twangy Kentucky accent, he would say, he would say and the world has yet to see what God can do through a man fully surrendered to him. And he's like, by God's grace, I will be that man. <laughs> so you imagine like a little four-year-old like coming to the hospital room and he just starts thundering out. Like, I just love it. Like, like no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor perceive what God can do. Even amidst all the miracles across history, all the things that God has already done, you still can't actually perceive what's possible 
through him. But God has revealed this to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. So what we do is, is through a foundation of worship, we position ourselves to receive revelation from the Holy Spirit. And in that revelation, we start to understand who God is and what God is doing, both in us and in the world. So God looks at those religious leaders, he goes, you don't understand the times. Why? Because you lack revelation. You have knowledge, but you don't even understand that God's revealing his very son to you in this moment. And so you lack wisdom because the Holy Spirit is, uh, uh, as our young guys would say, the portal I love that. The portal to wisdom. God opened the portal to wisdom. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct them? But we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that amazing? But listen, it doesn't start with the mind of Christ. It starts with the spirit of Christ. If you want the mind of Christ, you have to have the spirit of Christ. You have to surrender yourself to the mystery of the Holy Spirit who fills and baptizes and empowers believers. And then while you're being transformed, your mind gets renewed. But this is our spiritual act of worship. So the spiritual act of worship comes first and then the renewing of the mind. So we have, to, we have to give in to what Jesus is doing. We have to surrender to his way. And for many of us, we said that we had a prayer gathering last night. We have to be re-educated by the Holy Spirit. So many of us are coming to this church right now and the Holy Spirit's like, I have to reprogram you. Because you've been programmed in ways to speak, act, and think, and be a Christian in ways that I didn't ask you to be. It, got put, it was a yoke that got put on you. And it's performance, and it's like you gotta have the right doctrine, and you gotta, it's like perfection and all this stuff. And Jesus is just like, I just love you. <laughs> I love you with all your quirks and all your sin patterns and all your personality faults, all that stuff. I love all that stuff. I just wanna know you. I want you to know me. It's like this release. So Jesus speaks this over um, Jerusalem, and then he goes to the temple. And I love you. If you read the scripture, it says, then, then, then. It's like, he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and, and there's a reason I think he did all these things in succession. I don't think they were accidental. I think he's actually building the case for what we're talking about this morning. Then he entered the temple area. He began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teacher of the law, the leaders among them were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his word. So Jesus ends in the temple. He drives out all the stuff that they made the temple about that's not about him. That's not about him being lifted up, him being glorified. And he says, don't you remember, the father said, my house will be a house of prayer. It'll be a house where he dwells and people can connect to him. Jesus rides into Jerusalem and blesses the worship of the people, right? 
And then he prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple because of their lack of worship, because their, their worship isn't revealing him to people. Their worship is actually keeping people from seeing God. Then he enters the temple and he condemns what? Their lack of worship, their lack of prayer, the lack of connection that God desires to have a place on earth, right? Um, so if you guys know this, Greg and Todd, they named Skyline because the skyline is the place where heaven meets the earth. If you walk out into the prairie and you look at the sky, there's that point where it feels like the sky is touching the earth. It's heaven and earth. Jesus didn't pray that you would go to heaven. He prayed that the kingdom of heaven would come here on earth. Oh, that he would rend the heavens and come down and live amongst us. And that's the promise all throughout the Old Testament that I would dwell among them. I would be their God. They would be my people and I would be in their midst. Paul and Barnabas address this in the book of Acts. Um, it says, The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul tell about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. When he finished, James spoke up, right? So this is the controversy about Gentiles becoming Christians and what should we force them to do? Should they get circumcised? Should they obey the law? Should they go to synagogue? Should they take on our Jewishness? Or is maybe this is a whole different thing than we considered when Jesus sent us to the world to preach the gospel, right? So James says, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Listen to the words of the prophet are, are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. This is about Jesus. It's ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may what? May seek the Lord. Jesus rebuilds a tent where people can seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Jesus came to restore, and in another sense, to recreate the tabernacle or the tent of David. What was special about the tent of David? The special thing about the tent of David is in the tent of David, there was the ark in the center, and there was the people around it, and there were no barriers. There wasn't a women's court, there wasn't a Gentile's court, there wasn't a kid's court, there wasn't these people go to this holy place, the entire room was holy because God's presence dwelt in the center. And Jesus says, I will return to rebuild that tent. And they worshiped in that tabernacle 24-7 with instruments and with clapping and with dancing, and he hired 4,200 singers. <laughs> Like, I mean, it's like, there's just like crazy stuff that, that, that Jesus promises he wants to rebuild that tent. And here's what, what we see happen all throughout history. We see the ebb and flow of decline and revival, right? And the decline always happens when the church tries to take the way of the synagogue that the Jewish leaders settled for. God offered them his presence in their midst in the tent, in, in the tent and what they wanted was a lecture room where people talked about the Bible, Right? And then every once in a while, God would show up and his presence would come and that thing would happen again and then slowly but surely. So here's the thing we have to understand. Most of us have been raised in the synagogue model. Knowledge, listening, platforms of people. We haven't been raised in the model where the ark is into the center and everyone is a priest. Everyone's a minister. Everyone's a worshiper. And it's all about him. And that's why we started our Wednesday nights is because we wanted to have a night where it wasn't about anything except for Jesus lifted high, worshiped, acknowledged, invited. 
And so there's no sermon, there's no teaching. We have a teacher, it's the Holy Spirit. He says he will teach you, he'll guide you into all truth, right? And so Jesus came to fulfill that, this place where his presence would dwell. And this triumphal entry, I think he connects these dots for us that says, I'm arriving as the king, I wanna live among you, and I want it to be about me. That's it. And if you'll do that, I will take care of everything else, right? He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He's like, you don't have to worry about all the other stuff if you'll just do that. The one thing necessary, he talks about Mary. So I'm gonna invite the team back up and I wanna, I wanna give some um, exhortation to us this morning as we travel this week and as we think about our church, and it's fascinating because we've been in a series about Proverbs, right? We want to seek the wisdom of the Lord, but Jesus would say, you won't find true wisdom without being filled with the Spirit, without knowing the Holy Spirit, without understanding the Holy Spirit. And yet, on the other side, Jesus says the Father is seeking worshipers. What kind of worshipers? Those who worship in spirit and in truth. So our next series after Easter is going to be in 1 Corinthians about, about the Holy Spirit and the gifts, because we want both. We want, to be the, we want to be the wisest people on earth, Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, should be the wisest people on the earth. And they should be the people with the most power operating through their lives. It should demonstrate and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom in us, through us, around us. So, here's, here's when I want to make some statements about this little church. And, and maybe you've been here for a long time, and maybe you're brand new, but I just want to say, what our church wants to do is we don't want to settle for knowledge when God offers revelation. We don't want to settle for knowledge, for memorization of facts or knowing about God when he says, I will reveal myself to you. <laughs> I can and will show up in rooms, on streets, in homes, in offices, on the beach. I love the story of the Jesus people who read about the revival in the 70s. Uh, Lonnie Frisbee, this hippie guy who wore these like long, like, you know, I mean, I don't know, what are they called? There's like robes and like stuff, hair's long. And he's like, I would go to the Santa Monica Pier and I would jump up and down and yell, hey, until a crowd gathered. <laughs> hey! And then a crowd gathered, he preached the gospel and he baptized people on the beach. Why did he do that? Because he believed that God would reveal himself to people. Not that he could preach a great sermon and they'd be like, we're so impressed with your words, where do you preach? They'd be like, I Jesus is real. Can I be baptized right here? And they just baptize people. It's the great. I love that. But he didn't settle for knowledge. He was like, I want revelation. I want to see you. Moses said this, God, show me your glory. That's it. Show me your glory. That's the question. Show me who you are. I want to see you. As a church, we don't want to settle for a house of learning instead of a house of prayer. And learning is good, knowledge is good, all that stuff, they're good things, but if we stack those at the bottom, they won't hold what God wants to do, right? So all the knowledge in the world can't convince the world that we're in that Jesus is real. We talked about it a couple of years, like, it's not about Jesus being plausible, is, it, is he desirable? Can you show me that God is good? Not just in your words, but can I see it in your life? Is your life marked by the goodness, the peace, the joy, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the mercy of God? Is your life marked by that? Because if not, you can say God's real, I can prove it, He created all this stuff. They would just be like, I don't care. 
So what we know is that in houses of prayer, God shows up. So we, since we started praying and worshiping on Wednesday night, we have had tenfold, twentyfold, a hundredfold more life change in those three years than we had in the previous twelve. And I can honestly say I have never loved being a pastor more than I am right now. And I've never, this is a weird confession to you, but I've never done less as a pastor. And God has done so much more. He's like, your only job is to pray and worship in a way that invites me in and then get out of the way and watch me work. And the last is we, we as a church, we don't want to settle for a Christianity that has a hopeful future, but no power in the present. And say, go to the upper room and wait, and someday you'll go to heaven and be okay. <laughs> He's like, just stay there, escape the world, be safe, avoid all this stuff. He's like, no, 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 wait in that room until the power that I possess, that Jesus walked in, fills you too. I love it. He said, this life isn't about going to heaven, it's about heaven in you. My culture can fill your heart, your life, your marriage, your kids, this place, this city, this nation. All the questions people are asking about what's the future like hinges on can the church get into contact with God? Can we call him down to work in ways that we cannot do? doesn't matter how much money you have, how much power you have, how smart you are, how many degrees you have, you will not change the world. But he holds it all. Jesus holds the keys. He holds the keys. Amen? So I want you to stand to your feet. I want you to stand to your feet. Kiddos are coming in. Come on in. So, so can you just kind of sit with this question in your own heart? Say, say God, I, I don't want to settle for knowledge. I want revelation. I want to see you. I want to... Revelation is experiential knowledge. It's like the difference between reading a book about Mount Everest and being on the face of that mountain. You, you just know something in a different way if you stood. And God's like, come up here. I want to show you. Right? Let's not settle for just like someday in the future God's going to fix everything. Let's say, would you bring heaven here? In my pain, in my suffering, in my loss, in my confusion, in my broken marriage, in all these things, would you be God? Because I can't do it. Amen? So I'm going to pray for you. Jesus, we love you. We bless you. We bless these kiddos. We pray that the culture of heaven would fill this place. God, I pray revelation over the people in this room right now. I pray for a new season where you would be so real that you would break in. We would have Damascus Road experiences like Paul where he's like, I saw him on the road. We would have experiences of Emmaus Road where they said, didn't our hearts burn within us as that person spoke? So Jesus, we believe that you're alive, that you're the king, and that you're not finished with your church. And so Lord, would you come in these days, would you come and reveal yourself, would you come and baptize us in your Holy Spirit with power? And I pray right now, Lord, I pray that many who have been wandering and lost would connect to churches across this city this weekend, Lord. Would you fill the churches with prodigals this weekend to hear the glory and the goodness of your resurrection. New life, Jesus, that the church in Oklahoma City would be beautiful like you are. So we bless you, Jesus. We worship you. We celebrate your triumph over sin, Satan, death, and hell. Not just for the future, but today in our hearts, in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.